Okay, so this is going to be about the adjustments to the new society. Uh, adjustments. Last class, uh, last lecture, I talked about some of the uh, you know, reactions. This one's more adjustments. Uh, not as much about kind of a continuation. Uh, more of some different things. Kind of go into more things. Uh, so the first one we're going to talk about is labor. Uh, labor does change quite a bit. Last class, well, last lecture, I should say. So for this week, and you can listen to both these week. Uh, we talked, uh, I talked about the Knights of Labor. Uh, now it's the American Federation level, the AFL. This is the one that Samuel Gompers was affiliated with, which you remember from the reading. Uh, this is a more traditional union than the Knights of Labor. Uh, it's a union for skilled workers only. Uh, on, uh, skilled workers only. Honestly, the AFL is a collection of skilled labor unions. Uh, even to this day, the AFL is still around. It is an association of different skilled labor groups. So you might have like the electrical workers, the iron workers, etc. And they believe that this was the best way to organize labor since skilled workers were harder to replace. This also becomes the biggest union in America. Actually, still to this day, I believe this is still the biggest union in America. It does merge later with the CIO, which we'll talk about later on. If you ever want to picture, you will see uh, all goods in this label are guaranteed union made. It's the idea that, you know, they are. They're not just looking, they're trying to assure customers that, hey, basically you're buying this stuff, it's fair trade. Um, unlike the Knights of Labor, they're not as interested in looking to an alternative from the factory system, just a better life for its members. Uh, it's able to get things like the eight-hour workday and higher wages for its members. So if y'all haven't figured this out about me, I mean, I, I guess I haven't said this explicitly in class, uh, I'm a cultural historian. That, that's my main shtick. That's what I write books and stuff on. That's what I do my research on primarily. It's culture. So in this class, you're going to get some culture from time and time again. And uh, one thing that kind of comes about in this time period is the idea of a commercial amusement. Uh, break it down. You know, amusement something you do for fun. But the idea that you pay for it now. Basically, there people are trying to find ways to, like, you know entertain themselves to break up the monotony of their job. Now, that in of itself is not particularly new or novel. I mean, probably since the dawn of time or since the dawn of people working, people have been trying to figure out ways to have fun and, you know, break up the monotony of work. That being said, though, now it's like you they're, they're developing specific places, you know, specific things where, like, you spend money to have fun. Uh, before this time, you know, in a place like Raceland or something, you'd have fun, but it's like, you know, I don't know, like a like a dance at somebody's house or church or a music. You you would probably not have a specific location where you pay to have fun. And and one of these that comes about that really gets big in this time period is baseball. Uh, baseball gets very large in this time period. In fact, uh, there's a dramatic rise in the number of people who attend these large scale sporting events. Once again, I mean, you had sports in a place like Raceland or Chackby or whatever. But now that you're having larger cities with more people in them, there's more of a demand. More people are going to watch and pay money to watch people play sports. Uh, baseball in particular becomes incredibly popular. Uh, it becomes popular for a couple reasons. Uh, number one, baseball is in a very lush, green, outdoor environment. I mean, think if you're working in a factory, in a factory job, you know, you're going to be seeing the same things inside, the same, your same little workstation very much inside. There's definitely an appeal to being able to go outside, be in a nice green environment. You know, you see a, a nice big green space there. Uh, another reason why baseball becomes fairly popular 
is that uh, it doesn't have a clock. A baseball game can last however long it has to. It's you know it's nine innings. Um, you know if if there if it's a tie after nine innings, it can go into extra innings. There's no limit to how long a baseball game can last. There's not a clock. Unlike at your job where you're watching the clock, you're seeing when your work begins or work ends. It's almost a way to regain your time by not having a sense of time. Basically kind of having some more of your own autonomy. Another thing that's popular about baseball games, you can yell at authority figures. You know, you can you can say all horrible things about the you know the umpire or his his personal habits or his mother's hygiene or whatever. Uh you can say that. You can yell at an authority figure. They can't really do anything about it. Uh, compare that to your job, where you might feel you know, oppressed by your boss, but God help you if you yell at your boss. And so you start having some of your first professional baseball teams in this time period. Uh, baseball gets very large, very big. Uh, another very popular, very popular uh, form of entertainment that really comes into vogue during this time period is film, cinema, the movies. Movies get very popular in this time period, uh, particularly with working class and immigrant populations, uh, for a few things. Uh, of course, movies on this time period were black and white, and they were also silent. Uh, so if you were somebody who doesn't know how to speak English, or really, honestly, with some of these early films, uh, know how to read English, uh, it's okay. You know, if you watch a, a silent movie, they do a lot of acting, there's nothing you really need to, really need to have a knowledge of the language for, they're quite entertaining. Uh, likewise, movies in this time period, they are fairly short. Uh, so the way that movie theaters worked in this time period, it wasn't like you paid for one movie. You just paid for admission. They had a slate of movies, and you can stay there as long as you wanted. Uh, after a while, the movies would repeat. So pretty much you come in, you start watching a movie, and then uh, once you, you know, once it loops over, or once you feel like you're ready to go, you can leave the movie. And as I mentioned, this is very popular with working class people. Uh, very popular with immigrants. Uh, films are quite cheap in this time period. I mean, they're, they're similar to Adjusted for Inflation, but actually, they're probably a little bit cheaper. Uh, they're a couple cents back then, probably equivalent to a few dollars now. Um, you could bring in food there. Uh, the, the idea of the movie theater providing food comes a little bit later. Uh, but you, you're allowed to bring food in there. You can just spend an entire afternoon watching movies. Uh, I would highly suggest you... Maybe YouTube some of these older movies. If you're looking for a fun one, one I normally show in class, uh, it's an old French film called uh, Journey to the Moon. Uh, Journey to the Moon, I don't believe it has any subtitles whatsoever. It's literally just a 10-minute silent film. It's a, a science fiction film, pretty much, about uh, these French scientists. Uh, well, I guess they're scientists. They're, they look more like wizards or alchemists or something. Uh, going to the moon. They, they, they take a journey to the moon... Uh, the rocket smacks into the moon. You're going to have nightmares when you see that part. Uh, the devil's on the moon for some reason. They get chased around by moon demons. Uh, very silly film, but it, it kind of shows you this, time of, this type of uh, mindset. Another thing that comes up... Oh, yeah, there's Voyage to the Moon. You can watch it right there. Ah, I forgot I included a slide. Neat. Uh, also, the idea of the amusement park. Um, this, this whole idea of you're going to go to a place that's a permanent exhibition to have fun... Uh, the first really big one in the United States is Coney Island. Uh, Coney Island is right outside of New York. It's a beach. Uh, it also includes a boardwalk uh, to really kind of take on the uh, something like the boardwalk at a place like the World's Fair of 1893 Columbia Exhibition, which I talked about with the Western stuff. 
Uh, Coney Island, you know, it's not just a beach. It started out with a beach. But then they have other things. They have, like, restaurants, amusement parks, little rides, uh, you know, games of chance, things like that. It's a place where you could go unaccompanied. You know, if you were a young person living in the city, you could go to the amusement park. You could, you know, you could go without an escort. Uh, you could see people in their beach wear. You can see on the ride some strumpets with their... That looks very, very wet and hot. Like, in the sense of, like, like long stocking-looking things at the beach. That just seems like it would get very heavy and not very comfortable after a while, but oh well. But it's the idea that you could go to a place, you could have fun, you could go unescorted, you could meet somebody of the opposite sex, or the same sex, whatever you kids are into nowadays, and, you know, you could have fun, you could look at other people... Be unaccompanied, be anonymous, you know, spend your money that you otherwise make it the, you know, having a very monotonous, boring job. You can go out and spend your money doing something fun. Uh, something you still do today. I'm, I'm sure that uh, those of you who are work, I mean, I know it's different because of the coronavirus, but uh, this idea that, hey, it's, it's the weekend, I've worked all really hard, and now I'm going to get a chance to spend some of that money I earned doing something fun. Uh, the, the Coney Island idea kind of starts spreading around the country. Uh, more amusement parks start coming out in this time period. And it's a, the idea of spending money to have fun. Uh, I can't iterate this enough. The idea of having fun is not in particular new. But the idea that there is a specific place designed for you to have fun and spend your money. Now, another thing that kind of comes with this time period, another thing that comes with culture, is there's this fear, particularly amongst upper-class and middle-class Americans, that um, Americans were becoming too soft. Uh, you know, with the move to the cities, with the move away from an agrarian, um, ag- you know, agrarian economy, uh, a move away from farming, uh, with the move away from um, you know, roughing it, as I suppose, the idea that you know, you're not doing as much hard manual labor. Uh, there's a real big fear that Americans are becoming soft. Uh, they're they're becoming weakened. Uh, they need to do something to toughen themselves up. So you st- start having some of the um, the first real gyms, the first modern day gymnasiums. Uh, the idea where you can go somewhere, work out, you know, lift heavy objects try to, you know, sculpt your body into something better. Uh, Before this time, you know, if you're working a very manual job, you don't really need to go work out. You know, uh, if you think about nowadays at a a gym, you you know, you lift weights and you walk on treadmills. Uh, Before this time, you know, farm labor is a pretty good workout. Uh, I don't know if anybody here has ever worked farm labor or like baling hay or something, but that's a really good workout. Like, you will be sore. You don't need to go to the gym after doing that. But now with more jobs that involve sitting in place and not doing as much, a lot of middle class and upper class people are afraid that, you know, they're getting weakened. Um, not just that, the idea of bodybuilding comes about in this time period. Uh, if you go over to one more picture, you will see a guy by the name of Eugene Sandow. Uh, there's Eugene Sandow. He's the first modern day bodybuilder. Uh, it's not just enough to become strong. It's the way that you have to develop your muscles in a way that is aesthetically pleasing. Uh, Sandow did this thing. He was like, oh, I'm, you know, I'm the most perfectly formed human specimen. Uh, did things like on the left where he's like wearing fig leaves so he looked like the ancient Greek statues. 
it's the idea that it's not enough to just be strong. You have to look strong. Um, if you go to the gym vernacular, it's show muscles, not functional muscles. Um, sometimes just being really, really strong doesn't look aesthetically pleasing. Uh, for instance, if you watch on like ESPN 8, those World's Strongest Man competitions, um, most of them just look like chunky dudes. They're incredibly strong. They're you know, they're lifting thousand pound weights and things, but they're they're not a chiseled defined as opposed to something like a bodybuilder. If you see like a, you know the world's not the world's strongest man, but like Mr. Olympia or whatever, um, you know they are actually severely dehydrated. But theoretically, the emphasis is more upon appearance than actuality. Thanks to people like Eugene Sandow. Uh, now, there's also the belief that the types of new jobs are weakening people and feminizing people, uh, particularly men. Uh, feminizing men. Feminizing ladies is okay, I suppose, back then, but feminizing men. They thought that Americans were becoming too weak, too soft, too wimpy. And, and there's this idea that upper and middle class people are going to strike to um, rebel against the comfort that they found in modern day life. They don't want to be too comfortable. They want to become more strong. They want to become a different type of person. A key example of this is the rise of the bicycle. The bicycle comes around in this time period. Uh, the bicycle seems a way to like kind of reassert one's masculinity, toughen yourself up in this, you know, very urbanized uh, center. You know, the bicycle, you're, you're able to, you know, maneuver around an urban area, but you're getting physical activity out of it. There's a bicycle craze that comes about in the 1890s. It's the idea that a bicycle is something that is good for the body and can help strengthen you. Uh, there's also a fear with young men. Uh, a young men, basically, that our young college men are getting too soft. Uh, they're not competing in wars. They're not fighting on the frontier against Native Americans or cattle wrestlers or whatever. And so they have to do something to toughen themselves up. Uh, well, they come out with this college football. Uh, it, Kind of is it starts out as a variation of rugby, but then they make college football. Uh, the earliest college football is, is brutal, like super brutal, like people die brutal or get seriously maimed. It's only later they do things like introduce the helmet, uh, get rid of some of the illegal blocks and all. But it's the idea that you know our colleges are they're making our young men too weak, too wimpy, too feminized. I should also iterate in this time period that college was very much something reserved for the upper classes and middle classes to a lesser extent. But college was very much seen as an upper class institution. Uh, also, basketball comes about in this time period so that young men can keep drilling and keep training, you know, keep doing physical activity in the winter. Uh, basketball is an inside game as opposed to football. When it gets too cold and, you know, it's too snowy and you can't really have a clear field, you play basketball inside. Another craze that comes about that's kind of in the same vein is camping. Uh, camping comes about for the first time as a major activity. Uh, the idea that, hey, you're going to go out into the woods, stay in a tent, you know, chop wood to build a fire, that sort of thing. Uh, before this time, they didn't have camping. It was just called living. Like, you, if you're living out in the wilderness or whatever, or out on the frontier, if you're not living in a city, you have to do things like chop wood and sleep out of the elements every day. But now with cities becoming bigger and high, having more population, people are specifically seeking out camping as a way to get back to nature but also toughen oneself up. Uh, also for on college campuses, particularly with upper-class Americans, 
there's an obsession with military. Uh, they really think that uh, America has gotten too soft militarily. Uh, we don't have a good war to toughen ourselves up. We're not able to show our bravery without military, uh, without a good war. Most college campuses start uh, having some form of mandatory military drill. Something like the ROTC becomes mandatory at most colleges in this time period. Um, actually, until the 1970s, uh, very early 1970s, but on LSU's campus, um, it was a requirement for young men to be in ROTC. My dad went to LSU shortly thereafter, and he was very happy he didn't have to go over to ROTC, not because he had anything against the military, but because he did not like the idea of waking up at 5 o'clock every morning uh, to do drill. Uh, books about wars and armies become very popular. Uh, the Napoleonic Wars in particular become very, very uh, focused upon. This is where you have some of your first um, like war games. Uh, you might have seen like the little military miniatures of like various armies, people paint the little miniature figures and they have little fights with them. That's when this comes about in this time period. Books that are about the Napoleonic Wars become very popular. Um, you're going to see this more as it manifests in the Spanish-American War next week. But there's this idea that America needs a fight to show how strong we are in competing with other countries. Uh, there's also a mania for imperialism and getting countries and getting, sorry, and having colonies. Uh, we'll talk about this again more once we get into the Spanish-American War. But it's the idea that America is getting left behind. You know, all the other countries have these imperialist powers. You know, England's got most of the world. France has got some places. Uh, all the other European countries are getting all these colonies, and America doesn't have them. And there's this mania, maybe we should do it. We go over one slide. Uh, the final thing I'm going to talk about in culture is the emergence of the expert. And, and this is a bit different. It's, it's the idea that society is now looking for people to solve these problems. Big problems are coming out, and it was believed that knowledge, the scientific method, is going to make things better. It's the idea that all the problems in the world could be solved if we just learn about them and think really hard about them. It, 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 can't, it not only can explain how society works, but it can also try to explain human behavior and fix it. It's not enough that, hey, we can explain how things work, it's now we're going to explain how we can fix this. Uh, the primo example that I want you to think about for this is something like the urban planner, uh, something like a zoning board. Before this time period, most cities don't have zoning boards. They're not planning. They're just growing. Now, that works whenever a city is growing fairly, you know, fairly conservatively. It's not growing that quickly. But now that it's getting a lot bigger and now it's growing so much faster, you need somebody to plan it out plan out, okay, where is the sewage going to be? All right, let's lay it out. Uh, where are we going to put housing? Okay, where's the industrial area going to be? How are we going to put transportation to get people from here to there? Where's the power company going to be? How are we going to get electricity to all these places? And like I said, the urban planner is the ultimate example of this, but throughout the country, really progressives are really coming in to think about how we can use knowledge to get into this. Because the progressives are the next big movement we're talking about. Now, theoretically, they are uh, the opposite of the populist. Uh, I would argue it's a little bit different. It's a very loaded term, to, uh, to use the term progressive in this time period. Uh, a lot of people are opposed to this idea of progressivism, uh, yet it is fairly successful. Uh, there are a lot of different groups that are involved. Uh, a lot of times they disagree with each other. A lot of times they have different ideas. 
Uh, in general, though, it's people who are white, professional, and urban persons behind this. Um, usually it's a very upper and middle class phenomenon. This is opposed to the populist, where the populists were primarily rural, they're primarily lower classes, primarily from the western part of the country. Uh, progressives are typically, and I use the word typically very strongly, because it's a lot of different groups who have different things to say about each other. Uh, they're typically professional, they're typically white, and they're typically urban. And they're usually almost exclusively upper and middle class. Uh, typically there are private groups that do these. There's very few public agencies of this time period. Uh, there's also some journalists and muckrakers. You might have heard the term muckraker before. Uh, muckraker is a type of journalist that does like exposés. Uh, muck is just another word for like dirt. They basically they're going to turn over all the dirt in society, try to expose it to light so it can be cleaned and make it all better. Uh, this is also unique for the time period that there are a lot of women involved, uh, kind of akin to the uh, Women's Christian Temperance Union. Um, in fact, some branches of the Women's Christian Temperance Union are progressives. In fact, I'd say a lot of them are. But you start having more women getting involved in a lot of these causes. A lot of these women are upper class, you know, middle class ladies in well-to-do families who otherwise don't have a job or don't have a, you know, defined role in society. They're making a role. They're like, hey, I'm using the authority I get from my family and it's something that I'm allowed to do. Now, there are, the progressives are a lot of different things. I've kind of broken it down into four basic goals. There are four basic goals of progressive reformers. And, and like I said, there are a lot of different groups that have a lot of different ideas. Sometimes they're at you know, odds with each other. But in general, if you were to hop on a time machine and go talk to a progressive, there are four different things that they really get into. Uh, the first thing is most of them want to help victims of the new society. Uh, it's the idea that the new society has caused inequity. This new urban, you know, the new United States has caused more inequity. Some people are getting left behind. Now, who is left behind? That depends on the progressive. Likewise, what parts of society should we focus upon? Depends on the progressive as well. The second thing is to impose morality. They think the new society has gotten too immoral. They think that we've lost something but from going from the country to the city. We've lost part of our soul. We've lost, a lot of, we've lost part of our morality. And it's something that we should try to do more often. Now, how they want to impose morality, a lot of times it's through legislation. They think we should pass laws saying people should act a certain way. Other times they believe we should compel them through you know, various moral pleas. Um, the type of morality we should impose, likewise, kind of differs a little bit from place to place, what type of values... But still, they think morality should be imposed on people, uh, not let people decide on their own, really push them for it. Uh, a third one is to increase democracy. Basically, allow more ordinary folks to be involved in the democratic process. You know, allow people outside of Washington, outside of the state governments, outside of the city governments, to really get involved, let ha people have more of a stay in it. And finally, bring in experts to use their special knowledge. Now, the type of expert and the type of knowledge differs as well, depending on the progressive. But in general, they think that our problems could be solved, you know, imposing morality, increasing democracy, helping the victims. We're going to be helped out by the eggheads. Bring in the smarty pants. They're going to make things better. Now, the reformers quickly realize that they can't do this by themselves. It takes a while to make people do things by themselves. 
so they decide, you know what, if we make the government do it, if we make the government pass laws, the people have to act in a certain way to do these reforms, it's going to go a lot quicker. Likewise, because the government is a smaller group, typically made up of upper and middle class people in this time period, and a lot of these progressives are, you know, they're kinfolk, or maybe they have overlap, uh, they're very successful in getting a lot of things done at the governmental level. Uh, on the city level, I'm kind of going to talk about the various levels of government. Uh, on the city level, uh, governments start taking over the utility systems. Uh, think about it right now. You have utilities at your house or your apartment. Um, if you don't pay utilities, I'm sure your parents pay utilities or whoever you live with pays utilities. Now, what are utilities? Uh, that depends on the area. Just kidding. They're all pretty much the same. Things like electricity, water, uh, gas. Um, nowadays, people might argue that cable or high-speed internet is a utility, even though it's a private company. But it's the idea that these are the things that you need to make life a lot safer and healthier. Uh, you probably would not want to live in a house without running water. Uh, you know, we're, we're dealing with a hurricane right now. Uh, it really stinks whenever the electricity goes out. Uh, not having gas in the winter can be you know, deadly if you don't have heat. These things can be pretty expensive, and if it's just based upon a private company, they may not go out to certain parts of the neighborhood or certain parts of the country, certain parts of the state. Uh, for instance, I'm sure somebody here's got like a relative who lives out in the middle of nowhere, theoretically. Maybe they have a hunting camp or something that's very far out. But, you know, the, the, the utility company, it's a, it's a city-owned, it's a local government-owned company, uh, make sure that they can get electricity and they can get running water out there. That is something that is fairly standard. It's this idea that it would be unprofitable for a business to do this on their own accord, but because it's a utility and it's because it's the government, they have to make them do it. Another thing is the, the uh, advert of the city park. Uh, they're bringing in city parks and other green spaces. You know, as part of zoning, we need to have areas where people have, like, grass, where they can run around, relax, not be so claustrophobic. Uh, the most famous one is City Park in New York. Uh, Central Park. City Park's in New Orleans, and it's pretty cool, and it's the same type of thing. I meant Central Park in New York. Uh, if you've ever been to New York, Central Park, it's in the big middle of New York City. It's ginormous. It's uh, several acres large, and it's right in the smack dab middle of the city. You'll see skyscrapers all around it, but you have this nice big green space in the middle of the city. Same thing with City Park in New Orleans. Uh, they hire an expert to kind of run the city. That's the city manager. Uh, a city manager is a little bit different than an urban planner. Uh, a city manager runs the city's business, like straight up the city's business. Um, cities can be a pretty big business because they have people who work for them. They have people who, like, get their paychecks and stuff. And if you had to depend upon, like, the mayor coming in or, like, an elected official coming in and changing, you know, who picks up the mail, who collects the trash that sort of thing, it could get very tricky. But now you, and also like payroll, you know, who, who, make, who makes sure all these city employees get paid? If it changed every time there was a new mayor that came in, it could get kind of complicated. But now they have the city manager. Most large cities have a city manager. It's an appointed position. It's a non-political position. In fact, they can get into a lot of trouble if they start um, talking about politics or s supporting one candidate over another. And pretty much they run the city's day-to-day -day affairs. They sign the checks. They make sure that, uh, you know, trash is picked up no matter who's the mayor. Uh, this is a pretty major thing. Uh, back when I was an undergrad, one of my fraternity brothers, 
his dad was the uh, city manager of a fairly large city in Mississippi, and he'd been there for several mayors. I mean, he made a career out of it, and pretty much for about 30 years, you know, he signed the checks, he made sure the city ran okay, all the city services were all right. Um, he, you know, he served under several different mayors of different political persuasions, different parties, but yet his dad was, you know, Mr. Murphy was still the political manager, the city manager the entire time. Uh, likewise, like get rid of the urban boss. We talked about the urban boss before when we talked about urbanization. Uh, a lot of efforts to get rid of the urban boss, get rid of their power. In addition, uh, most cities start closing red light districts and imposing morality. Uh, the red light district was initially kind of a compromise to you know allow prostitution in certain areas. Uh, however, with the rise of the moral reformers, the moral progressives, uh, they start getting rid of red light districts. Uh, in addition, things like prohibition get passed along on city ordinances. That's where you have things like the dry county, wet county. On the state level, there's a lot going on. Like, a lot, a lot going on. Uh, I'm going to focus mainly on the expansion of, of democracy. Um, a lot of these reformers believe that state governments were corrupt. They believe that they were too insulated. Uh, you know, those fat cats down in Baton Rouge aren't listening to the normal man, aren't listening to John Q. Public. They need to figure out something better. Three things I want you to know that happen on the state level. Uh, the first is the recall, all right? The recall is put on the books. A recall election is basically if there's a politician who the general public thinks is, hey, he's doing a very bad job, he or she's doing a very bad job, they're, they're, they're clearly corrupt, you can have what's called a recall election. Where basically you don't have to wait until the politician's term is up, you can recall them. Uh, basically you have to get a bunch of signatures for a petition, and if there's enough signatures, it goes to a statewide vote. And basically you can uh, kick out a politician who's not very good. Uh, this most famously happened, barely within your lifetimes, but y'all are very little, in California. Uh, in 2004 in California, the governor was recalled. And then it was a cuckoo banana pants. Who's going to run for governor next? Um, there were so many people running for governor. Gary Coleman from Different Strokes was running for governor. Uh, Gallagher, the comedian who, who smashes pumpkins and watermelons, was running for governor. I think there were a couple porn stars running for governor. Uh, the person who ended up winning was Arnold Schwarzenegger, uh, the movie actor. He was governor for two terms in California, which is crazy. So that's a recall law. The second one I want you to know about is the referendum. Uh, the referendum basically allows the general public to uh, put measures on the ballot. So basically, if you don't think that the state legislature is making a law that you want, you could have a referendum passed. Uh, you, once again, get enough signatures on a petition, and then it goes to a statewide vote. It's a way to bypass the legislature if you feel it's not something the legislature is going to talk about. Uh, things that are like this. Well, I know the last time I visited my parents in Montana... Uh, they were doing petitions for marijuana in um, Montana. Uh, the state legislature said they were not going to, you know, touch it. So, you know, we went to a farmer's market, and then there are people trying to gather up signatures uh, for saying yay or nay to um, marijuana in Montana. Uh, you do have to be a resident of the state to sign these petitions. I mean, that's, that's for all these petitions. You have to, you know, prove your state residence. Uh, I remember they're, they're pestering us, and uh, we were like, "Hey, we don't we don't live here." And so they got mad at us and left because people in Montana don't like people from out of state coming in. But they thought we were from California. We're not from Louisiana. They really don't like Californians. Sorry, different story for a different day. 
Uh, the final thing that they bring about on the state level is the political primary system. I uh, remember before this time, political candidates for the national parties were chosen in the proverbial smoke-filled room. Uh, the idea that the party happens, the convention happens, and you have no idea who the uh, candidate is going to be. Uh, thanks to primaries, uh, basically there is more involvement on the state level about who is going to be the candidate for a particular party. The party just doesn't give a candidate. The people who are members of the party decide the candidate. So once again, recall, which is basically get rid of a bad politician, referendum, put a um, law on the up for a vote if the legislature is not going to talk about it, and finally, the political primary system, which basically says the members of the party get a chance to choose. Now, on the national level, we're going to focus on three presidents. We're going to focus on three presidents, uh, three guys who are pretty interesting, and they're guys I want to talk about for a little bit. Uh, I do want to tell you real quick, though, this is thematic. We're going a little bit further ahead in history, uh, especially once we get into Woodrow Wilson. Um, Next class, we're going to go back a little bit. Remember, up until World War I, this class is a little bit more thematic than it is chronological. So just be aware. Uh, keep your keep a heads up about that. All right? We good? Cool. So there are three presidents who really kind of fit the mold of progressives. There are three um, presidents who really make their name as progressives, kind of embody these progressive ideals, and they really want to do things on the state level to improve society, to make things theoretically a lot better. And there, like I said, there are three of them I want you to talk about. Uh, typically, progressives are Republican because Republicans are tend to be the more the urban, big government, big city, upper class people. Uh, that being said, one of these people is a uh, Democrat, but he's a super progressive Democrat. Uh, he's also problematic. We'll talk about it in a second. So the first one, if you go over, go over in picture, you will see Teddy Roosevelt riding a moose. Uh, sadly, that is Photoshop. He didn't really ride a moose. I wish he did. Uh, Theodore Roosevelt comes into office whenever William McKinley is assassinated. Uh, that's right, William McKinley is assassinated in this time period. Uh, he's assassinated by an anarchist. Uh, he's an immigrant anarchist by, by the name of Leon Chalgosh. Um kind of a, you know, anarchist, labor union thing. Uh, does not help the perception of labor unions this time period, whenever you have, you know, an anarchist uh, shoot and kill the president. Um, ironically, Lincoln was, not Lincoln, Lincoln, Lincoln died a while back. Uh, McKinley was not shot all that badly. Uh, he actually died later, kind of similar to Garfield in this time, in this context. Uh, later on, like whenever Reagan is shot, uh, Reagan shot a lot worse than McKinley is, and yet Reagan survives. Mainly because they learn more about sanitations and things. Uh, another ironic thing about this assassination is that guess who was there again? Yeah, Robert Todd Lincoln. So Robert Todd Lincoln has the distinct mispleasure of being at three presidential assassinations. Well, being a witness to it in a sense. Uh, he was not at Ford's Theater whenever his dad got shot. He was there on his deathbed. Um, he was there. He actually watched uh, McKinley get shot. Sorry, he, uh, Garfield get shot. And he didn't see McKinley get shot, but he was outside of the building. Like, he heard the shot, he heard the commotion. Uh, afterwards, he was like, I've never... He even got invited to a presidential thing. He's like, nope, not going to anything presidential ever again. Anytime I show up, the president dies. So with this, all right, with this, the guy who comes and becomes president is a vice president, uh, Theodore Roosevelt. Uh, Theodore Roosevelt is our youngest president. He's barely 40 whenever he comes into office. He will probably forever be our youngest president. 
Uh, he's an utterly fascinating individual. He has a pretty fascinating life. Uh, pretty much everything. He comes from a very, very, very wealthy family um, up in uh, the Oyster Bay Roosevelt's up in New York. Uh, it's a very old Dutch family, so that even predates New York. They're like New Amsterdam money. Uh, comes from a very, very, very super rich family. Uh, lives with his mother. His dad dies when he's fairly young. Uh, when he's fairly young, he has asthma, and he's very wick and wick wick. That's a combination of weak and sick. If you don't know that, he's wick. He is very weak and sickly. Um, he has asthma, and basically, he decides, you know what? I'm gonna I'm gonna work my way out of asthma. I'm gonna like toughen myself up so that I can like lift enough weights, become super strong, and I can beat my asthma. Now, if you have asthma, don't do that. Use your inhaler. But somehow it works for Roosevelt. He's able to like get really strong, and he kind of beats his asthma that way. He stops being sickly, really develops his body, also develops his mind. Uh, he goes to Harvard. He's very, very intelligent. Um, he's, you know, he's, he's equally obsessed with books and army stuff. Um, when he's fairly young, he gets married, gets involved into the uh, state legislature, and then he has the worst day of his life, um, truly the worst day of his life, where basically on the same day in the same house in opposing bedrooms, his wife dies in childbirth and his mother dies of an illness. And that was very, very unexpected. In fact, in his diary, he normally kept a very prolific diary, he wrote on that day a giant X and all light has gone out of my life. Now after this, he has a daughter that he doesn't really know how to raise, and so he decides to become a cowboy. Uh, he leaves his daughter with relatives and goes over to Medora, um, North Dakota, and basically he acts as a cowboy for a year or two to kind of get over his, uh, his grief. Uh, however, he was not a very... Um, <laughs> he, I mean, he becomes a better cowboy as time goes on, but when he first, whenever he first gets out on the range, a lot of the other cowboys make fun of him because they think he's a, a rich boy. Uh, to be fair, to be fair, he got his cowboy outfit from Tiffany and Company. Like, you know, the, the, the jewelry people, they're the ones who made his, uh, his outfit, his cowboy outfit, his buckskin was done by Tiffany. So, of course, he got a lot of it in that. Uh, later on, he we'll talk about what he does in the Spanish-American War. We're talking about that later. Don't worry. Uh, just know he's a very energetic guy. He later does get remarried. Has like eight kids with his second wife. Uh, his first daughter, Alice, is just a hoot. I love Alice Roosevelt. She's the funniest person on the planet. Um, she's like a teenager whenever he's an, a president. And she's like... She just said everything. Later on in life... She would say, one of my favorite quotes from her was like, hey, if you don't have anything nice to say about somebody, please sit next to me. You know, so they could rag on people. Also, he told the cabinet, um, you know, sirs, I can either run the country or manage my daughter. I can't do both. She was a wild child. But even the rest of the Roosevelt kids were kind of fun wild children. Uh, they had like a whole menagerie of like goats and weird animals and they kept as a zoo. Um he was known to like run out of cabinet meetings to like play cowboys and Indians with his kids. Uh, his wife said, you know, I have nine children and Teddy is the oldest. So eh, Teddy Roosevelt, fun guy. Uh, he's remembered as one of the best presidents we got. Um, if you look at the, the list of the best presidents, he's usually in the top five, if not top three, very, very well remembered. Uh, he does talk a lot about trust busting, busting up monopolies. And he does a lot of it. Uh, he uses the Sherman Antitrust Act to really bust up abusive monopolies. Uh, really big on big business, but he also says big business needs to be good for the country, not too big. 
Uh, likewise, he creates the National Park Service. He's a very big conservationist. He's a very big outdoorsman. He says, you know, the, the interior of the country shouldn't all be developed for business. We need to keep some of it just pristine so we can go out and go to places. He also supports the Pure Food and Drug Act, thanks in large part to a book called The Jungle. Uh, the Jungle is a book by Upton Sinclair. It's about the meatpacking industry in Chicago. Uh, theoretically, it's supposed to be a call for organized labor, basically talk about how bad the workers' lives are. But when people read it, all they hear about is just how nasty the meat is. Let's talk about it, like how sausage is made in Chicago, and it's really nasty. And basically, this pretty much passes the Pure Food and Drug Act. Uh, later on, we'd have something like the FDA, which basically makes sure that all the ingredients in something are what it says. So, like, if you buy pork, you know it's pork. You have inspectors to make sure the meat is good and not rancid. He is incredibly popular. He is incredibly, incredibly, incredibly popular. Uh, he could run for a third term. Remember, his first term was filling out his uh, predecessor's term, William McKinley's term. He could run for a third term. He would have won a third term. He was super popular. However, he decided instead to kind of step to the side. He's still a fairly young man. He's still in his 40s in this time period. He's like, you know what? I'm going to go um, hunting on an African safari. I'm going to let my hand-picked successor come over. Uh, somebody who's his total opposite, his old Secretary of War, now Secretary of Defense, uh, a guy by the name of William Howard Taft. Now, don't even go to the next picture yet. I need to talk to you about William Howard Taft. Because as soon as I said William Howard Taft, your mind went to one thing and one thing only. It was, oh yeah, our fattest president who once got stuck in a bathtub. Yes, he was a fat president, but you know what? He was way more than that. William Howard Taft, actually a bit of a dynamo. Um, he's a very different guy than Roosevelt. Uh, very different, much more mild-mannered, uh, much more interested in judicial matters. Um... Taft's lifelong dream is to become a Supreme Court Justice, ideally Supreme Court Chief Justice. Uh, he has no real desire to become president, which makes it even more sadder that he becomes president. But let's talk more about his younger life. Uh, when he's a young man, he um, is born to a very, very well-to-do Ohio family, yet another Ohio president. In fact, later on, his children would form a pretty big political dynasty. Uh, for quite a while, the Taft family is like the premier family within Republican politics. Uh, Taft is, uh, you know, he comes from a very good family, very wealthy, well-to-do family. Uh, he goes off to college at Yale. Um, at Yale, he, he is, like, well-known as an athlete. He's uh, pretty, big, pretty good at baseball. He's pretty well-known as a baseball pitcher. He's actually offered a major league contract uh, out of college. He turns it down, but he's a pretty good baseball pitcher. Uh, while he is at um, Yale... He joins a secret society called the Skull and Bone Society, uh, which you may have heard of. It's a secret society at Yale. It's had multiple U.S. presidents be member members of it. Uh, pretty much every U.S. president who went to Yale was a member of the Skull and Bone Society. Uh, while at Skull and Bones, he got the nickname of Magog. Uh, Magog is a demon from the Book of Revelation. Uh, it's, a, it's a tradition um, within the Skull and Bone Society that they give the nickname every year to the pledge who has the, quote, most prolific sexual history. So pretty much, uh, Taft was a, <laughs> he was a player who got around. He played baseball, and apparently he got around with the ladies, and so he got the nickname of Magog. Uh, afterwards, he becomes very well-known as a diplomat. He becomes very well-known as a diplomat. Uh, he does marry, he does have kids. Uh, problem is, he does not like the public life all that much. He'd much rather, like, you know, he becomes a lawyer, 
much rather do judge stuff. He doesn't like it very much. He's a very good diplomat. In fact, he's brought over to be one of our first people in the Philippines. We're going to talk about the Philippines next class. Remember, this is a more thematic one. Uh, the Philippines are a possession that America gets. In the Philippines, he's our main um, diplomat, main person in charge of the Philippines for the United States. He does have a comment that makes a lot of Filipinos upset and also makes a lot of Americans upset. We're basically like, hey, Americans need to treat the Filipinos correct nicely. Uh, they're nothing but our little brown brothers. Uh, this offends the Filipinos. who are like, who you call them little and who you call them brown? And the, you know, uh, some Americans get upset because uh, they're like, who, who you call our brothers? Still, Taft is pretty well known in the Philippines. Now look at the picture. Uh, that is him because he gets a little too heavy to ride a horse. That is him riding a water buffalo in the Philippines. Doesn't look like he's very comfortable with that picture. Uh, I don't think that, that ox is very comfortable or that water buffalo is very comfortable with that picture, too. Uh, the problem with Taft, though, the problem with Taft is that um, he does not like the public life. And he becomes president. You know, it, mainly his wife wants him to become president. I mean, you know, I mean, even though he's not that interested in it, he'd, he'd rather become um, Supreme Court justice. He doesn't like it very much. He, he likes the idea of it. He likes what it does for his family. He actually does more trust-busting stuff than Roosevelt. Like, he actually get, gets involved in more progressive reforms than Roosevelt does. But because his, his demeanor is completely different, like, Roosevelt is boisterous, he's loud, he's up in your face. Um, Alice once said of her dad that he had to be the... He has to be the bride at every wedding and the corpse at every funeral. He just, she, he just needs all the attention... Uh, Taft is much more mild-mannered. He, he's very soft-spoken, very intelligent, but he, he's very soft-spoken, very mild-mannered. He does not have the abrasive, in-your-face personality as Roosevelt, even though he's actually doing more of the things that Roosevelt talked about. Uh, he also really hates being president. Uh, he has a anxiety about it. Uh, he gains a lot of weight as president. In fact, he puts on most of his weight as president. He gains like 100-something pounds as president goes from like 250 pounds to like 350 pounds. Uh, very large man. Uh, that's where all the stuck in the bathtub sap happens. Mainly because he's eating a lot because he just is overwhelmed with anxiety and not liking his job of being president. Now, although he is doing a lot of progressive stuff, the one thing he doesn't do that what some progressives want is he doesn't lower the tariff on imports. He keeps the tariff fairly high. That upsets some uh, progressives. Now, this kind of leads into the cuckoo banana pants election of 1912, which is a crazy election. Uh, it's an election where we don't just have two parties running. We don't have three parties running. We have four parties running that have a legitimate shot of getting the White House. Uh, Roosevelt, in particular, is kind of upset about what all Taft is doing. Um, he's like, hey, maybe I could get the Republican Party nomination. Uh, Taft is even willing to acquiesce. Taft is like, look, if Roosevelt wants a nomination for the Republicans, you can have it. I'm not really interested. I would gladly yield to Roosevelt, and that's fine. However, the regulars of the Republican Party don't like that. They're a little, you know, they're like, no, we want to stay with Taft. He's a president. Plus, Roosevelt's personality might be kind of abrasive to some people. And so they just, the Republican Party decides, you know what, we're going to go with Taft. Um, Roosevelt decides to go with a third party, the Progressive Party, uh, later known better as the Bull Moose Party. Uh, Bull Moose is a nickname that Teddy Roosevelt gets. 
Um, actually, because he is shot while giving a speech. Um, literally. Uh, Teddy Roosevelt is giving a speech. An assassin comes up, shoots him in the chest. Teddy Roosevelt doesn't not only lives, he finishes the speech. He doesn't even finish the speech after he got shot in the chest. He got shot in the chest. He is bleeding from the chest because he got shot with a gun during a speech. And he finishes a speech, like not just a five-minute speech. He finishes like an hour-long speech and then goes in to get checked out. And he survives. And whenever the reporters are like, Jesus Christ, how the hell did you do that? He's like, well, takes more than one little shot to kill a bull moose. Nickname stuck. Uh, if you go to Teddy Roosevelt National Park in Medora, North Dakota, I've been, you can see the shirt. You can see the shirt that Teddy Roosevelt was wearing, bullet holes still in there. It's mind-numbing that that's what Teddy Roosevelt does. Uh, the Bull Moose Party, the Progressive Party, is a cuckoo banana pants party. They have a, um, a convention that's got like every wackadoodle you could imagine. Uh, their, their campaign theme song is Onward Christian Soldiers. Uh, it's an old hymn you might be familiar with. Onward Christian soldiers marching as to war With the cross of Jesus going on before Yeah, that's a political campaign. That's weird for politics, but it's this whole religious fervor. Uh, there's some people who are like, hey, if Roosevelt's not elected, the apocalypse is going to happen. Uh, Just imagine a political convention where, like, every speaker is the person who makes those posts on Facebook that your aunt shares. Like, just all the cuckoo banana pants political people are on here. Uh, Also, the Socialist Party, which is a party of socialists, capital S, socialists, they run somebody by the name of Eugene Debs. Uh, Eugene Debs is unique in that he is running from prison. He is literally running from prison. He actually gets a lot of popular votes. Um, He doesn't get any electoral college votes, but he is literally running from prison. He is running for president from prison. I think he gets something like 10% of the popular vote. It's, uh, sorry, he gets 6% of the popular vote, which is crazy when you think about it. Joe Exotic got 10% of the popular vote in Oklahoma when he ran for whatever, but that's a different story for a different time. In the midst of this, uh, the Republicans go with Taft. Taft, who is not too happy about this. I mean, he'll take the party to his nomination. Uh, You know, Teddy Roosevelt's getting all the attention. And it looks like the Democrats might actually have a chance because Teddy Roosevelt is going to split the vote between the Republicans and this progressive party. And Eugene Debs is just no real shot of getting anything. So the Democrats go with Woodrow Wilson. Uh, Go over one picture, you'll see Woodrow Wilson on a horse. Couldn't find a funny picture of him on any animal, so I just went with a regular horse. But he's got a tap on him. That's kind of funny. Woodrow Wilson is a Democrat. He, He is hailed as a progressive he was the uh, governor of uh, New Jersey. He was a governor of New Jersey for a while, the progressive governor of New Jersey. Uh, before that time, he was president of Princeton. Uh, Princeton, the Ivy League College in New Jersey. Uh, before that, he's, a, he's our only president to have a PhD. Uh, he was a professor of political science. Uh, professor of political science and history. Um, so I guess he's kind of like me in that regards. Uh, You know, he's a professor, he's got a PhD, he teaches history and political science. Uh, He's also initially from the South, although he is from, uh, he's he's elected out of New Jersey. Uh, He's initially from, I believe it's like the kind of uh, South Carolina, Georgia border area. Uh, Whenever he's a very young man, um, he 
meets Robert E. Lee. He, he's super young. Like, uh, Woodrow Wilson's, like, not even 10 years old. Shortly before Lee dies. Uh, and that's kind of the thing about him. He has very strong Southern sympathies. Like, a lot of Southern sympathies. Like, he's the South... Like, the Confederacy was okay type of sympathies. In fact, the South hails him as one of their own. Remember, the South in this time period is primarily Democratic. Uh, he's also racist. Like, even for the time racist, we're going to talk about that more later uh, when we get into World War One and stuff. Like I said, this is not a chronological thing. I'm going a little bit further. Uh, Wilson is for the time racist. We're going to talk about that a little bit later. Uh, Wilson does do some things that progressives like. Uh, for instance, he lowers the tariff. Uh, he does lower the tariff. He also creates the Federal Reserve System, which uh, kind of changes how we do money. Um, I'm not going to get into the Federal Reserve System because it's complicated, but there's a series of banks that regulate our currency, make sure inflation doesn't get too bad. Uh, he also creates the income tax. And believe it or not, at the time, income tax was a very popular thing because it only taxed the top 5% of the population. And that tax rate was fairly low. People believe this time period, the income tax was the fairest way to tax people. He also establishes the Federal Trade Commission, which is a governmental agency trying to find and correct unfair practices. Uh, like I said, I'm going to talk more about him much later when we get into things like uh, World War I. Uh, just be aware, I wanted to focus on what he does for progressives. That's his progressive reforms. So government has expanded. It's expanded democracy in a very large way, and it's also really expanded responsibility. Now, in light of this, other things are happening across the country which kind of are a little bit of a backlash against this. Not just a backlash, but kind of kind of against it. And we're going to talk about that more next class when we talk about the rise of the racial order, but also the rise of imperialism and things like the Spanish-American War. But with that, this is Dr. Tully finishing up with Adjustments to Society.